amen to that. And um, let's open our Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. Some of you aren't used to ever hearing the expression, open your Bibles to Malachi, and uh, you know, we're just starting the series. So let me, um, let me just orient us again. Um, we're looking at the last book of the Old Testament. He's one of the 12 minor prophets. And my, uh, my experience with the minor prophets is, uh, well, true confession, it's minimal. <laughs> I've read through them, you know, done some Bible uh, reading schedule, that sort of thing, but uh, Malachi is the first one I've studied in depth, and it's really been rewarding uh, because of the way that it's so consistent with, the, the, surprise, the rest of the Bible. It talks about the foundation of our relationship with God is his love for us. Right out of the chute, the first thing that God wants his people to know is, I have loved you. And that sets the tone for the whole rest of the book. God's got some, some harsh things to say to his people for their inconsistencies and their hypocrisy. But because he loves them, you know, it's easier to hear. It's the same, same is true anytime you have a correction that somebody offers you. If they are not for you, it's harder to receive that correction. If they are for you, you go, okay, bring it on. I can take this because I know that you have my best interest at heart. Uh, God's going to do uh, some things that's going to expose hypocrisy in his people. I need hypocrisy in my life exposed. And I think all of us, as we focus on Jesus, as we want to walk closer to him as disciples, our number one prayer is, Lord, make my life more and more consistent with your kingdom. I want to bring glory to Jesus. Uh, I appreciated you know, the, the prayer that may our lives be a testimony to Christ wherever we live and work and um, you know, whatever we're doing throughout the week. So that's Malachi's agenda. That's where he's going, at, going for. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 14 in chapter 1. Um, Let me just go ahead and read. You guys can remain seated. This is God's word. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Well, you place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it. By saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, 
but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Father, we do acknowledge that you are a master, you are a great king, you are our God, and we want to honor you this morning, and we want to live our lives consistently with your kingdom, and we pray that you would use the gospel to lead us in repentance, to lead us in that kind of consistency that when people see our lives, they would have, well, just fewer reasons uh, to see hypocrisy and more reasons to see consistency. And Lord, we pray that through that, you and your name would get great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, again, strong words. I mean, that's, that, that's sort of the medicine of the minor prophets, and we need to get used to that, but I think it, it becomes more palatable and we can hear it if we draw some parallels. God's saying, hey, listen, you're bringing to me your diseased or crippled animals, right? And, and those, aren't, those aren't acceptable sacrifices. Here, here's a parallel. How do you feel um, if somebody gives you a hand-me-down? You remember when maybe some of you grew up in large families, you were like the, the 12th of 15 kids or whatever? Do you remember getting the hand-me-downs? Do you remember the pants that didn't fit? They were like high waters before you'd even had your growing spurt. Uh, they were threadbare. They'd have three, four, five patches in the knees or whatever. The shirts or the sleeves only came down to here. Uh, do, do you know the, uh, how that felt to wear the hand-me-downs, to wear the stuff that nobody else wanted, the stuff that, was, that went into the reject pile? Um, maybe... Maybe that wasn't your experience, but maybe um, you've had the experience of being re-gifted. Or maybe you've done the re-gifting yourself. Uh, you know, you get that gift, and you go, oh, well, uh, don't really need this. This goes in the queue uh, for the baby shower or the, the wedding or next Christmas to that aunt second removed or whatever the case may be. And then, um, I know this is probably more rare, but... What if the re-gifting comes back around and you get that gift again uh, because nobody else wanted it? You know, this, is the, this is the experience of somebody not wanting or appreciating what they have and saying, well, I'm just going to pass this along. I don't want this anymore. It has no value to me. And therefore, I can pass it off and it costs me nothing. And what God is doing is he's addressing this valueless religion this discount religion, as um, well as Scott Adams, the uh, author of Dilbert, puts it. You know, if you read Dilbert, you're as warped and strange as I am. But um, this is from a calendar. I don't remember how many years ago, but honestly, this this is on my bulletin board above my desk in my, in my study next door. So this is how much I like this cartoon. So it's Dilbert and Dogbert. Dogbert is Dilbert's dog. And um, they're just having a little heart-to-heart. Dilbert's in his bed, and um, Dogbert is at the foot of the bed. And Dogbert says to Dilbert, I decided to start a discount religion. You know, newsflash. He goes on to say, the tithing would only be 5%, and people can sin as much as they want. Discount religion. goes on to say, the only problem is that I don't want to spend time or eternity with anyone who would join that sort of religion. Of course not. Of course not. Because it's shallow. It's discount religion. It costs nothing. You know what, you know what people appreciate? You know what gets the attention in terms of 
religious spheres, you know what people admire? They admire sacrifice. Not convenience. The kinds of people that, that stories are written about, books are written about, legends, you know, end up being, being told, are those missionaries and those martyrs whose lives and even their deaths are conformed to the gospel. And even in that death, they die willingly because they say this is not much of a price. This, this does not even compare to the worth of the one who I worship. And that's genuine religion. That's religion that touches the heart. That's religion that is costly. But in the end, we see that it was costly to God and it rewards bountifully uh, those who worship the, the Lord Jesus. So this is what Jesus is getting at as he, through his spirit, is speaking to his people um, 2,500 years ago approximately. And these are the people that were giving God basically their goodwill donations. Giving God their secondhand items. You know, they've finished the yard sale. They've packed it up. They've got this pile of stuff that nobody would even pay a quarter for. And they're packing it up and they're taking it, you know, just down the road here to the goodwill or downtown to the Salvation Army. And that's essentially what God's people were doing, is they had their animals that nobody wanted, they couldn't sell, they weren't good for breeding, they weren't even good for eating. And so, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll kill two birds with one stone. We'll get rid of these bad animals, and we'll check the box for meeting God's requirement of sacrifice. We'll take that you know, animal, and, uh, and then it gets sacrificed. The goodwill donation, right? And, um, and so that's how they're treating God in his temple. Look at verse, uh, verse 8. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor and see what he thinks. Uh, this is all consistent with the whole sacrificial system, which I know might be new to some of you. If you're new to the church, new to the Bible, the whole um, idea of sacrifice in the Old Testament was basically a testimony to the consequences of sin. That sin required a penalty, justice, you know, for there was a crime. And, uh, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, is how that expression goes in the Old Testament. So God instituted a whole sacrificial system where people would bring the best of their flocks, the first fruits. And you saw this initiated way back at the Passover, when God's people came out of Egypt. And he said, the first of every flock, and even the firstborn of your family belongs to me. Uh, and they come as sacrifices. Listen to Leviticus 22. If any of you, either an Israelite or an alien living in Israel, presents a gift for burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering, you must present a male without defect, a spotless, without blemish, without fault sacrifice, in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. God said, I want the best. I'm a great God. That's what I require. That's what is going to pay the penalty for that sin. Uh, my faith is they were looking to one who would ultimately forgive their sins. So, so um, Malachi is preaching to a community that's lost sight of the purity of their religion. They're embracing this discount religion. Hey, you know, hey, God's okay with it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. He can take our, our cast-offs. Um, you know, in a, later on in verse 13, you see not only the blind, crippled, and diseased, but verse 13 talks about the injured animals as well as the crippled and diseased ones. Literally, uh, those are the, the torn. The language is torn, meaning that these are the animals, the sheep, for instance, 
who, uh, you know, the shepherd has a herd of sheep, the wolf comes, attacks a sheep, doesn't kill the sheep, but he is fatally wounded or maimed in some way. And so the shepherd thinks, um, or the person, the owner of that sheep thinks, hey, great, the animal's not dead yet, I'll take it to the altar, and it'll be the sacrifice. And God says, no, that's unacceptable to me. Because, listen, uh, it's another place in Exodus now, Exodus 22, you are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. There's animals torn by wild beasts, injured by attacks. What does Exodus say about the nature of that animal? What is it good for? It's to be thrown to the dogs. It's Alpo. It's literally Old Testament Alpo. The animals that are torn by dogs. And this is what God's people were placing on the altar. Saying, God, here's what I think of you. That's yours. That's how shallow their religion had gotten. God doesn't deserve anything better than my dog's food. That's how bad things had gotten. That's how much they'd lost sight of the glory of God, the greatness of their great king. And God wants to bring them back and to woo their hearts to see his true character, his glory, his beauty, the, the, the goodness of the Lord. And they are saying, hey, we're too good for God's table. We give them our dog's food, and furthermore, we sniff contemptuously at what's on that table. Well, no kidding. Look at what they're putting on that table. They're going around with their noses in the air saying, we're too good for this. It's like they bring the goodwill donations uh, and offer them at the temple, but then they're too good to go and shop at the goodwill. And they think that God's okay with that, and that's how they're treating him. You know, they've lost sight of the glory of what God has provided. It's a feast. They sniff at it contemptuously. Say, they say, what a burden. I love the old other translations. Uh, the NAS says, my, how tiresome it is. And the ESV saying, what a weariness this is. Do you ever feel that way in worship? Do you ever just get so tired of coming Sunday after Sunday? Do you ever get just to feeling that this is just so wearisome, the Christian life and discipleship? God is wanting to woo your heart back. God is saying, I am a great God, and you've lost sight of that. That's what happened to God's people that Malachi is speaking to. It, they're, they're treating God's table, the, fe, the feasts that God would invite his people to, they're treating them like a, pot, like a poor man's potluck. You know, imagine somebody who you know is just destitute, inviting you over for supper, and you're kind of going, I don't, you know, do I, what do I do? Do I accept this invitation? I mean, I, who knows? Who knows when I'm going to be served? Maybe they bought something at Sharp Shopper, and that's what's going to be on the dinner table. Um, and they, um, they've forgotten. They've forgotten the character of God. The one who is Israel's king, who is the great king over all kings, who isn't inviting them to a poor man's potluck. He's inviting them to a royal banquet. A royal banquet. But instead they sniff contemptuously at it. God's name is great. Over and over and over again, he talks about his name will be great among the nations, and he wants his name to be honored. Just in this passage alone, 
Six and a half times, God's talking about the glory of his name over and over and over again, how important it is that, you know, that Israel realized that God is their father, and a father is due honor. God is their master, and a master is due respect. But he's their king, and, and a king deserves obedience and compliance. He's the Lord Almighty. He's the Lord of hosts. The Lord of all the angels and all the realms. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about legions of angels. Jesus, when he was before Pilate, you know, Pilate's just amazed that Jesus isn't defending himself. And what does Jesus say? Listen, in an instant, I could call down 12 legions of angels. 72,000 angels in an instant. And they would wipe out Rome, wipe out, you know, Pilate, wipe out every authority raised up against Jesus, but Jesus doesn't do that. But he's Lord over those angels. And he can have them at his bidding. And that's who God is. He's a father, he's a master, he's a king, he's the Lord of hosts. And he wants his name to be praised and prized in the hearts of his people. He wants us He wants his Old Testament people, us, as his New Covenant people, to resonate with what another prophet said, Isaiah, who said that my name and renown would be the desire of your hearts. The desire of your hearts. Is is that the condition of your heart and mind? That, That what we want is God's name and fame to be great among the nations. And in Waynesboro, and in Augusta County, and in Nelson County, and in Stanton, and wherever you're from. Is that your passion? Is that what you want? God's name and renown to be great. God's zeal for his glory is for our good, too. God says that it's all about recognizing his worth. Uh, that old, uh, old English word for worship comes from God's worthship recognizing his worth. And God over and over and over again is revealing himself to us as one who is far above us and worth our attention, worth our lives. Listen to another place in Isaiah where he's expressing this. The sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. This is the living God. This is the God who exists right now. Listen to this description. His reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? With the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? And he goes on to say this. Listen carefully. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Lebanon's forests are not sufficient for the altar fires, meaning you could chop down every tree in the Middle East and build a big bonfire out of it, and that would not be sufficient for the kind of sacrifices that are worthy of one who is so great. You can take every single cow on every single field and every single hill And, you know, have this sacrifice, this grand sacrifice to put to shame all of Solomon's sacrifices and all of David's sacrifices. And still, you would be left saying, we have not yet sufficiently expressed our devotion to one so great. That's the kind of God this is. 
Is that the kind of God that you and I worship? Is that the level of our devotion? Because when it is, when our satisfaction is in God, when we esteem Him that highly, we become very joyful people. Because that God who we worship and whom we adore is for us. And He's drawing us back to Himself. And He's telling us to find our joy, our satisfaction, our purpose, our meaning in Him. Paul understood that. He understood that, look, you could chop down every tree and sacrifice every animal and you would still be left going, we have not yet expressed our devotion. He put it in different terms. He said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Whatever I had in my asset column, I'm now taking that whole column, cutting it, pasting it over here in the liability column, compared to, in relation to, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not saying that everything that I have, all my accomplishments, all my trinkets, all my toys, God's glory is a little bit higher than that, and therefore I worship him above all those other things a a tiny bit more. Paul describes it as surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's enthralled with Jesus. His heart is captivated by the glory of God on display in the face of Christ. Is that where our hearts are? That's a happy heart, people. That's a heart that's full of joy and full of of glory, full of praise. And a heart that wants more of God. God is infinite and will never be exhausted. Um, Paul understood that and, and recognized that basically because he understood the sacrifice of love, the sacrifice of Jesus, the pure offering that Jesus was, um, the one who gave his life for us. You know, in our passage, looking at verse 14, God's calling to task. Uh, the cheat, and he calls down a curse on the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. God, God's bringing to task those that are you know, giving lip service and demonstrating that kind of hypocrisy. And, and I think it's good for us to see that God is not a cheat. God offers the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Listen to 1 Peter 1. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God says that it wasn't with perishable things such as silver or gold. I'm, as, I need to pause there. Is, is gold and silver perishable? Is that generally the kinds of things that we consider perishable? No. I consider a banana perishable, but not gold or silver. Why, why are gold and silver being called perishable? They're being called perishable in relation to, in comparison with, the precious blood of Christ. The blood of the Lamb that is in, of infinite value compared to the things that the world says is of greatest value. You know, we withhold the things that, from God that we think are valuable to us, but God has given everything because of his love. And that's the nature of love. Love doesn't withhold. In his love, God offered his son. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And And this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And, God, and, you know, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, becomes the evidence for how he will also, along with him, generously give us all things. And when we look at the cross, we see the evidence of God's love for us. We see the lamb that was slain so that our blindness, our spiritual blindness would be cured. So that our spiritual diseases, even our physical diseases, that the renewal of all things, when no more sickness and no more pain and no more death is going to exist, God's lamb, instead of being diseased, cures disease. Instead of being blind, heals our blindness. Instead of being torn, mends our brokenness and repairs the effects of life in a sinful, broken world. And ultimately, we look ahead to the day when there will be no more curse. And the leaves of that tree of life and the new creation that the Lamb will bid us access to will be for the healing of everything. That's what the Lamb does. That's what God's sacrifice does. That's what love's offering looks like. So what about our offering? What does our offering look like? Well, it's not what you think. What does God want from you? What does God want from me? You know, it's kind of easy to pick on people 2,500 years ago and say, oh my goodness, look at those hypocrites. (laughs) Look at how inconsistent, you know, their religion was. Look at that discount religion, giving God their goodwill and their dog food and so on. You know what God does? He says, I'm going to take your dog food. I'm going to give the body of my son. I'm going to give the blood of the Lamb of God. I'm going to take away your curse. I'm going to take away your guilt. I'm going to take everything away. There's no more sacrifice for sins left. It's satisfied. And it's done. That's what happened on the cross. Are you willing to exchange this for that? Because this is all we have to offer. Literally, the only thing that we can truly call our own that we could ever offer to God is what? Dog food. Our sins. Our brokenness. That's the only thing that truly belongs to us. Do you know what everything else is? A gift. It's a gift. Your time. Your money. Your family. Your your work. Um your retirement, your friends, your sexuality, your body, everything that you have is a gift to you. And let me put it this way. God doesn't want just 10%. Um, He's not really interested in 5% either, by the way. He doesn't want our discount religion, and he doesn't want sort of our minimum standard of religion. He's not interested in 20% either. Or 50% doesn't impress him a whole lot. Do you know what impresses God? 100%. put our entire lives on that altar and say, God, I'm yours. I no longer belong to myself. I belong to you. And then out of everything that you are, everything that you do, you serve him all the time. As priests, as people, who by virtue of the love of God for us, no longer look at what I do to please God and to make, him, make myself acceptable to him. I already am. Through Jesus. And therefore, I love him in return. Love holds nothing back. 
How much do we love him? And what are you holding back? God says to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That doesn't sound like 5% or 10% or 50%. But as we grow deeper in the gospel, and as we see that exchange, what God took away and what he provides instead, our love will grow. Our lives will be more consistent with the kingdom. We'll be less and less hypocrites. And we'll love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength more and more. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to live lives that are more and more consistent with your kingdom. Or that we would be overwhelmed by your love for us. That we would see how love changes everything. It changes um, how we view ourselves, how we view our, our spouses, our kids, our friends, our our siblings, our co-workers, our roommates, uh, kids in class next to us, uh, people at work in the cubicle next to us, or the assembly line next to us. It teaches us to view um, our careers differently, our retirement differently, our death differently, by virtue of the way that you removed the curse. You took away the penalty for cheats, and you make us your friends. Thank you for inviting us to your table through Jesus our Savior. Amen.